and think strategically around, you know, how to engage users. What are they looking for? What problems are they experiencing currently? And how can we make this environment better for them? What are their priorities and vision for the future? So a lot of listening. Erin currently bridges the gap between healthcare research and medical planning at a large architecture firm in Dallas, Texas. She has carved out this niche in the architecture field for herself and did it at an earlier age than most of us. She knew at the start of her architecture degree what she wanted to focus on was healthcare and that Texas A&M's program was one of the best. From Texas to a long stint in New York and back to Dallas, she has spent time lecturing, writing, and designing throughout the last 10 years. So let's hear about Erin's journey now. All right, friends, 10 Colleagues, 10 Years is a podcast series where I interview 10 of my colleagues from architecture school 10 years after graduating. We all went to Texas A&M University and received a degree from the College of Architecture, but ended up in drastically different places. This podcast is a celebration of what a non-traditional architecture degree offers for the skills that it teaches. It's 10 individual stories of navigating a career path that's meant to be inspirational. And when I personally started my own architecture practice earlier this year, I attribute some of my success to this kind of degree program. So I hope that you get the same sort of inspiration from these stories, and thanks for listening. I'm Heather Pogue, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. Hey, Erin. Hello. It's so good to talk to you. So with all my colleagues, I share a story at the beginning of each episode that encapsulates how I think of them as a professional. And it's an early innocent memory, but I think it has a lot to do with how they've spent the last 10 years maturing into their career fields. And so with Erin, I didn't actually take a lot of studios with her, but every architecture student had to do the same electives in secession. So we spent a lot of time in our elective classes as a cohort. And I didn't know Erin particularly well, but my memory of her is how engaged she was during class. Her hand always shot up for questions when the professor asked if anyone had any questions. Her hand was the first one up. And she always had the biggest smile on her face, always had this curiosity about her. And I remember just thinking, who is that girl in the front row that always raises her hand and is not afraid to ask questions and is not afraid what other people think? And I think that's carried over into what she does today, at that level of curiosity and engagement. Erin's one of the most passionate people I know in the field, and so I'm proud to have her on the show. I'm still doing that. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I think that's how you learn. Thanks. Yeah. So um, the first question I have for you is, what was your fairy word? What I mean by this is, fairy's actually a person. He's John Ferry, and he was the studio professor you had directly before or after Rodney Hill, typically. His assignments were notorious because the first day he made all the students select a word that described themselves, and then everything we designed in that studio had to express that particular word. First was a 2D drawing of delicate small ink strokes, then came the 3D cube of shapes, and then, lastly, a house. All had to ultimately express the word, and our colleagues became known for that word. So I thought it would be fun to revisit this topic 10 years later. Long story short, my word was supposed to be ardent, and I was like totally invested in it. And then Brian, who was totally non-ardent, 
got ardent right before me <laughs> when I went for whimsical. Actually, I got off a lot easier because whimsical is very, it has a physical manifestation. Ardent really doesn't, you know? Yeah. So you weren't yeah. sad that you didn't end up with ardent. I was, no, I was continuously a little upset. I was constantly like, I'm not sure that that's really ardent. Do you think that that's ardent? <laughs> you were more critical of Brian being ardent because you could have done better. <laughs> Wait, what was your word? My word was vibrant. Oh, nice. And that was actually a good one because he didn't have a preconceived notion of what vibrant was because I don't think it was a very popular word. So it was free reign to do whatever. Yeah. But would you say that you're still whimsical? I would say that I have never pictured myself as whimsical, but I think that my artwork is whimsical. When I was younger, I was always told that And I love drawing whimsical pieces and painting those. I'm like, oh, am I still whimsical? I don't know. (laughs) Well, what about Ardent? Our house is definitely whimsical. Okay. I try to be Ardent always. So I think the opposite of Ardent, to me, a little bit is like jaded. I remember when I moved to New York, I said, all right, I'm here. If and when I become jaded, it's time for me to leave. So when you're not being ardent, it's time for you to leave. Feeling passionately convicted about about what I do and how I spend my time, and especially for me around patients' issues, because I work in healthcare a lot, is, okay, how do we make this world a better place and use the environment to do that? and have a human touch around that. Very cool. My next question is, what is one of your favorite memories from architecture school? Oh, that is a good question. Or uh, or describe your time in architecture school, if you had to encompass the four years you spent. Well, my, and who knows, but I really, I just worked. Mm-hmm. I just worked all the time. I mean, and every, no, every single person worked constantly. We all worked constantly. But I think I'd had a good time younger in my life, and I was just really focused. I dual majored in psychology. I think that also sort of bridged me into two fields. But, like, there's so many good memories of, like, friends, late night silliness that happens naturally in all of in all of architecture. But I remember this one time how I discovered what I wanted to do around architecture. But now I'm like, oh, I'm not sure whether that's another question. Oh, well, no, you can go into that now. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like all my architecture memories are like, I remember all these like tough times, but like fondly. It's mainly, um, I'm trying to describe for the audience, I think it's a really unique degree in that we share a lot of time with our peers and it's a creative field, right? So there's not a lot of objectivity and there's not an end. There's deadlines, but there's, you could just keep going and improving. And I think it's unique also in the fact that you're a strategist and a problem solver. 
So I think mm-hmm. all of those things, I'm kind of curious to hear how you went into school thinking you, what you would get out of it and what was different about it. But I kind of want the audience to understand what a unique degree it was and try and like give them the experience, you know, yeah, because yeah. it is so okay, different. So let me just think real quick. So like, for instance, when I discovered A&M did healthcare, it was monumentally life-changing. You know what I mean? When did you um, discover that? We were in like a really long studio and there was this presentation going on in the auditorium right next to the woodshop. And I wandered into the presentation just for no reason. And it happened to be exactly me. It was exactly what I was looking for. And I instantly sat down, watched the entire rest of the presentation, like raised my hand for questions (laughs) Yes, of course. <laughs> so, Aaron, <laughs> and then uh, and then went up and talked to the speaker, and I was like, "This is amazing! Well, how do I get more involved?" Yeah. And and he was like, "Well, you know that you guys have a program for this," and I was like, "Get out of town!" <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> what was the talk about? I I don't remember exactly. I like I remember he was talking about the details of how do you make environment that is physically and psychologically supportive wow. of vulnerable populations specifically in healthcare that's which is exactly what I do now and and I actually ended up working I now realize that person was Craig Zimmering who is the head of Georgia Tech's program who I've now had the pleasure of working with as a research consultant but at the time it was just sort of like he was speaking to exactly what I was looking for. And I had no idea that it existed. And I had no idea that A&M was a place that it existed. And so in speaking with him, I realized that our program actually had a special track for healthcare. So when you came to A&M with the idea to go to architecture school... Were you also planning to double major in psychology and weave your way and do social work and tell that conversation? So, okay. So basically what happened was when I was in high school, I was, I took a bunch of college courses for probably like a year and a half. I was doing uh, college courses in addition that included sociology, criminology, psych. And as part of that, I did uh, what they called active learning. And so that's like where you go and volunteer and it like takes the place of an exam. More like a clinical would be for medical field. Yeah. So I did that thinking, okay, I want to do social work. And I quickly realized I'm going to need to find another way to help care for people. This is, this is not my path. Okay. (laughs) And my first year of school, I actually went to Loyola in New Orleans and kind of majored in psychology or focused in psychology and took a course in environmental psych. And I was riveted. Realized pretty quickly that like not everyone was riveted and that that was like something special. There was like this amazing connection. And for our final thesis, designed a project that was entirely based on research, on psychological, environmental psych research. And decided to switch schools because, you know, my school didn't have that and Mm -hmm. switch majors and do architecture. And yeah, I think A&M, you know, because our program was environmental design, 
it was different. It wasn't just architecture for me. Like it was more of how do we think about designing environments for people and how do we think about all of those components around that? And I think that's really what got me interested and made me want to do that program. But yeah, when I, when I moved to A&M, I had full intent the whole time to double major. And you're yeah. one of the few, I think, that most people that obviously that go into architecture school envision themselves as architects at the end. And we'll, <laughs> we'll soon find out through interviewing everyone that that's not the case, that some did traditional path, but a lot veered and found their way somewhere else. But I think you were unique. You wouldn't yeah. be a traditional architect at the end of it. And that's yeah. something I think is different about you. Yeah, totally. I remember early on having all these conversations because I, I didn't know anyone that did what I wanted to do. And so every time I would meet anyone that overlapped, I'd get insanely excited. Yeah. <laughs> but I kept being like, what does this look like? But I just wanted to have that role that allowed me to advocate mm -hmm. and to use research and to help shape our physical environments because they're so impactful to our lives. I feel like every time we forget it, we end up somewhere and it just, you know, this space feels right or I'm so exhausted by the end of the day, what's wrong? And then you realize it's not what you're doing. It's not the people you're with. It's actually the environment, the physical environment that you're in. And that bridges to my next question, which is um, you talk about there's not a lot of people that did what you ideally wanted to do. And so who was instrumental in getting you to where you are, whether it be in architecture school or later on, like who would you say have been pivotal or inspiring or have you gotten yeah. to work with that have yes. you've walked, followed their path or helped, they've helped you carve yours? So there's countless people. I mean, cast of thousands. And, yeah. The first person was, you know, when I went up to that speaker, he said, you know, you guys do this. You should really talk to Susan Rodick, who was standing next to him. And if there is one person that I think of that helped to open up that world for me, it's her. And she was bridging all of them. She had practiced for numerous years and then had gotten her PhD and done research and was advocating for long-term care environments. And she was our sponsor. We basically the next semester after I discovered that we had a program, um, me and another student co-founded the Student Health Environments Association at AM to have a group of like-minded people committed to this. And it was interdisciplinary. Susan was our sponsor and she was also a mentor to me that helped me navigate through my first writing projects, because mm -hmm. if you're going to be in this field, you've got to be able to read a lot of information, write it up and think about how it's going to be useful to designers. And she was amazing for that and just really supportive. All the other, I mean, there's so many people in, in the community, all the way from Mardell Shepley to Kirk Hamilton and a ton of people later on that have really helped me to see this path and and have opportunities along it. And then can you briefly describe what you do now? 
so it changes every day, um, <laughs> usually every hour. Yeah. Um, so my title is design research strategist. And really what I do is I bridge research and design to think about specifically in the healthcare arena, but also throughout all of our sectors at a large architecture firm, HKS. We do not only architecture, but a lot of different types of design and think strategically around, you know, how to engage users. What are they looking for? What problems are they experiencing currently? And how can we make this environment better for them? What are their priorities and vision for the future? So a lot of listening. And then also, what does research say around certain topics? So been working on a breast cancer center recently and thinking, okay, well, not only what what's going on right now, what are the operational issues that they're facing? What are the patients struggling with and what's their experience? But also, you know, how do we start to look at interventions through the physical environment that can help support them? And, you know, all the way from what are new treatments or what are non-invasive treatments, even to talk about the importance of wellness and yoga and does having a demonstration kitchen as a part of your clinic change the lives of patients, you know, to help empower them to be able to know how to cook more healthily for themselves um, and, and their children. So merging all of those things in and then both doing some design and working with designers. That's not a very common bridge. You put the designer hat on sometimes, and then you also get to put your research hat on, and you're going back and forth between architects and researchers. You're excellent at both, but you get to see those two worlds, and that's also a very unique way to apply it. Um, Do you feel like this is becoming more of a – there's more awareness around it, and there's going to be more of a career path for people like yourself? A hundred percent think so. Because even if you think about when I was first starting out versus now, there were very few positions for researchers in healthcare firms. And now that's so much more expected. And for instance, probably six years ago or so, uh, I wrote a piece on the integration of research and practice for the AIA handbook of architectural practice. And it was like the first thinking about, all right, how is this being integrated? Who's doing it? And at that point, there was such a small group of researchers to talk to and interview. And I've definitely seen that grow and be transformed. But not only that, but more of the, you know, I think our generation is looking for more data driven decision-making and our clients are too. Mm -hmm. And the number of interviews I've been in where they said, okay, and what were the outcomes of that project has been almost every interview. When that's the case, we have to be thinking this way. So you think there's more opportunity there for people like yourself? I definitely do. I think there's two types of success. There's people that come to it as a late bloomer and there's people that Mm -hmm. come to it early. And Mm -hmm. I'm just curious um, where you think your falls, if you, if your genius has arrived or if um, it's a late bloom and you're still working towards it. 
man, I definitely believe in being a lifelong learner. So I am always unsatisfied. But, you know, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of opportunities really early in my career. I thought, you know, when I was much older, I would go and teach. I taught my first class at a graduate level in my mid-20s. And that was, was such a gift to be able to share that and to engage. And, you know, I just feel like I've had a lot of those great opportunities. Hopefully all of my life will, will be learning. <laughs> Continue. Totally. Yeah. And then since you've described your career and where it's taken you, I, I kind of want to step back actually and talk about the in-between. You were in New York for many years, and I think that's pretty influential on your career. And you went to grad school. And so you have this position and you're getting to do the research and the design. But mm -hmm. I would like to hear about the in-between. I guess, what did that teach you or how did that get you further into where you are now? You know, I think, oh, there's so many. Um, and honestly, I just feel so grateful for everyone that kind of partnered with me and believed in me uh, along the way. Um, for me, the conviction that I started off with was designing informed by research and informed by the human perspective was the only thing I ever knew. It was the first thing I ever knew, right? Because I started in environmental psych. That's really driven my advocacy and the very firm belief that we have got to work across boundaries and across professions if we're going to make successful, meaningful, systematic change. When I graduated from undergrad, I founded the Academy of Architecture for Health Knowledge Committee when I was in Austin. I remember asking, well, it, how can I join? And they said, there isn't one that you can join, but you know, you can start one. And so I, <laughs> I did and made that an interdisciplinary group. So we had specialists throughout all of the disciplines that touch architecture and help to make healthcare facilities specifically successful and chaired that. And then was fortunate to go back to do grad school, had an amazing panel of experts as my committee had a really interdisciplinary committee. So I had one of the, you know, head people from our nursing school, a person that focused, he was a MD that also had a background in psychiatry and landscape and then researcher and landscape architect, basically all of the stakeholders that I wanted to kind of critique this interdisciplinary approach and really enjoyed that had a number of grants and, and fellowships for my graduate work and got to do uh, original research and integrate those findings into design guidelines that informed my final study. And then, yeah, I mean, out of that, I, I was fortunate to be reached out by HOK in New York that had a lead researcher there who I had known through the industry and I did not ever envision myself moving to New York and doing that, but um, <laughs> that's what the world held. Um, and so moved there, had that position created for me to be that bridge in between research and practice. You know, 
I often joke, I did 50% research and 50% practice, which meant that I just worked 80 hours a week, um, <laughs> which is pretty true for about two and a half years. I've started to try and balance that a little bit more uh, since then, but really being very involved with the AIA, especially related to architecture for health. I've served as a trustee of the Academy of Architecture for Health Foundation, helped to be the research chair there, which has also been really helpful because I think a lot of us aren't trained to think like researchers, uh, mm-hmm. aren't trained in even understanding like bias, little little things, or how do we how do we critically analyze the results of past studies? And so it's been such a gift to get to work as this intermediary, kind of helping to be the voice of an architect for the research community mm-hmm. and the voice of research for the architecture community. So that got you where you are today. And mm-hmm. I think we're all at a really pivotal point in our career being 10 years graduated and having this journey to get somewhere. And it's a good time in our lives to like set ourselves up for the rest of our careers because mm-hmm. you have the the experience and you've you know, been out there carving this place for yourself. So what does the next 10 years hold for next endeavors? You know, I think one of the gaps that I see is that there's still, although there's change brewing, that that voice of being able to go in between architecture and understanding research and really being able to put it in each other's terms is really needed. I focus primarily on healthcare, so that's probably where I see it most needed. And I'd love to be able to reach out more, reach out to our clients, to the people that are making decisions, to architecture firms, and to all of the disciplines that touch architecture, and even, especially even to patients and families that are thinking about how to advocate and start to say, okay, how do we create an engaging platform that like brings people in? Because I think research can sometimes feel like this extra thing that you have to do on top of your project work. And we're all so busy, but curiosity is within all of us, right? And it's how do we engage that curious piece of us and engage that into our projects and in a more joyful way. You know, the next 10 years, I hope to be able to foster some of that through our firm and through writing and potentially exploring other mediums and definitely through some teaching opportunities as well. So that's really cool. Sounds like a fun adventure and you already are a teacher. I mean, you talked about doing that in your mid twenties. You are really talented at that and um, being able to bring people to the table because it sounds like yeah you're right everybody has curiosity but a lot of times it's trying to find a channel to be able to affect change that'd be a hard mission to try and figure out a way to to have their advocacy heard I think that's a challenge not just like healthcare and architecture but just life in general and trying to figure out how to be heard and how to affect change Right. And like, keep that spark of hope alive in all of us. We were joking at the beginning, like, (laughs) part of the people are like asleep during class, because like, we're Mm -hmm. all so exhausted, right? We have Mm -hmm. such busy schedules. Mm -hmm. But there's so much joy and fun 
to be had and meaning. You know, I think about a lot of times the people that do the details of the building to understand how the building is actually going to be constructed. Um, that's where success and beauty uh, happens. That's where the space comes together and either becomes something special or becomes something that leaks, you know? <laughs> and when we can recognize that like all of these expertise that people have are so vital to the success of every project that we have. It's not just like, Oh, well, you're doing research. Isn't that cool? It's like, well, this person's, you know, focusing on this and these people are integrating this. And I think that's, what's so fun about working with others is to recognize the beauty and what they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody has a part and it's valuable. And I think the thing about architecture, it's such a long game. Um, there's a lot of moving parts and pieces and a lot of, it's just a lot of decision-making and things that have to come together. At the end of the day, I kind of always joke, there's, it's amazing anything gets built because of how many things there are along the way. And I think that's synonymous with like anything requires so much decision-making and people's efforts. Yeah. Being able to make all that meaningful and have people feel value to be a part of that process. It's like, why else do we do what we do? Why else are we doing this? Yeah, no, you're so right. You know, there's plenty of projects that we start, especially large hospitals where, you know, it's built and occupied maybe eight years after we start, you know. It takes a lot of passion to get through that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So you said you've been given opportunities along the way. Do you feel like there's more opportunities to be given, especially being maybe on the younger side of the career that we all are, you know, we're all in our thirties now, but we're still relatively younger than colleagues that have carved the way before us. But I'm curious, what other opportunities would you like to see in what you do? I mean, part of, part of my switch. So like two things, one of which is while I've had a ton of opportunity, that also came from a lot of asking for it from a lot of, this is so cool. Would you be willing to partner with me on this project? Would you be willing to help teach me the amazing things that you know? Part of my shift is to get out of myself and really focus on like, how do I support the next generation? Mm-hmm. And how do I think about their issues in ways that we can bring them up. But, you know, I'm so happy to show up as a mentor. I have taken every call that anyone's ever reached out to me. I've had a lot of people reach out and say like, hi, would you be willing to talk to me about the I, I always say yes. But I think that it's really on the mentee or the younger person to keep that up, to be willing to ask and to be vulnerable and to keep that connection and that it's up to the you know mentor or the oftentimes the older person but not necessarily to respond and to be open to that but we respond well when others show that they care they're willing to work for it okay all right if you're willing to work for it then let's do this yeah like I'm on board show that you have the interest Yeah. yeah Uh, I think that's great advice for everyone, not just younger listeners, but I think that's just a good mentality to have. 
through life. Yeah, right. So a story that comes to my mind, probably one of my favorite stories, is when I taught at both New York School of Interior Design and Pratt Institute. And when I taught the Pratt Institute, I co-taught with an elderly gentleman named Norman Rosenfeld. And he was a healthcare legend in New York. I remember early on approaching him and saying, oh, I hear that you teach. I, you know, let me know if there's ever any opportunity to partner or to support you in any way. And so we, we met for coffee one time and he was kind of grilling me and telling me, well, I have this class and, you know, maybe you can come and be my assistant. And I was like, I'm would be honored to work with you, but I would work with you as a partner. And I remember he was such a tough cookie and he was like, tell me why you deserve that. Like, why would, why would we be partners? I'm, you know, I'm a legend. Mm -hmm. Who are you? And I just remember sort of like laying out very respectfully the strengths that I would bring to this team and how we could approach teaching differently together. And at the end of it, he put his hand across the table and shook my hand and he said, all right, partner. Um, you know, I think there's opportunities like that for everyone. That's such a good story. And so you too, to be like, this is what, this is what I bring to the table. And then it goes back to what you're saying. Like you ask for it. You find your own opportunities in life by being curious and then actually following through and continually asking for it. Yeah. I've definitely seen you do the same and that like belief in yourself and not it's not that you're like saying you you deserve more, but you're saying like, I'm here, I'm showing up. Dear person, will you show up with me? There's something that like you just want to support. You know, I've definitely followed your career and felt that same way, you know, just like rooting for you, showing up. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I always say half the battle is actually just putting yourself out there. Or more than <laughs> half of the battle, really. Because if you have the yeah. passion and the diligence and you work hard enough just showing up is most of it and then usually the the opportunities there for the taking yeah yeah the last one and this one was kind of like (laughs) along the lines of the fairy question it's pretty simple the pinnacle of architecture school is to pull all-nighters and oh yeah that's kind of a badge of honor and I think everybody likes to reminisce about that or brag about how many nights they spent all night at studio. So I'm curious if you had to put a number to it, how many all-nighters did you pull? You know what's funny? I don't know that I pulled a single all-nighter. I pulled <laughs> I pulled a lot of one hours and um, a, a whole lot of three hours. <laughs> But I don't know that I ever pulled an all-nighter. Okay. I'm just not built for that. Okay. Not like one hour worth of work, but one hour of sleep. Close to one all-nighter. Hour of sleep. <laughs> yes. One hour of sleep. I remember one of the other students being like, Erin, no, you can't. I was like, I'm just going to take a nap. And he was like, you can't. You will never wake up. And I was like, I will wake up in exactly one hour. <laughs> And you did it. You didn't sleep through your presentation. And I did, and I finished the project, but um, <laughs> I don't function well on zero hours of sleep. I think yeah. we might share that because I don't think I pulled one all-nighter either. <laughs> but that's why I want to serve everyone because I think it's super interesting and maybe that can be correlated. Maybe it can't. But in terms of, like, <laughs> who spent 30 of them versus <laughs> zero? I know. 
It was so funny. I remember getting back to the studio. There was one of the other students that's like this big buff guy that always works out. And he was like, he was on top of one of the desks, curled up under what <laughs> could only be described as a baby blanket. Which I'm like, where did you get a baby blanket? And <laughs> well, at least he got a little nap. Um, I remember um, Whitney Altenhoff built a fort under her desk day one because she was like this is what architecture students do I think there was like that tactic okay this is what we do so I'm gonna prepare for it and bring my microwave and my coffee maker and set up the fort and have the sleeping bag and you're totally bought in you're all about it and live the lifestyle sleeping bag (laughs) those are fond memories and something different about what we do too It's funny, my dad's a physician, and he often jokes about the same thing, because, yeah, you you thrive on being able to be, like, little sleep for long periods of time. <laughs> well, awesome. Thanks for talking with me and sharing your path. Yeah, thank you. I just kept wanting to ask you all of the same questions. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what? You might be the perfect person. I thought if somebody did want to interview me after this. Um, yeah, I kind of want to contribute the story too, just because I think it's right? fascinating. Uh, the whole thing, uh-huh. and that so. It's amazing how life turns out when you engage and show up. That was my favorite piece of advice Erin gave on the episode from her days as an intern and student. Erin has always been engaging and makes herself visible and present to those around her, aka she shows up. And the result is opportunities that unfold for her in a way that has been very fun to watch. Stick around for next week's episode where I interview a U.S. Air Force flight commander who plans to be an architect when he turns 40. See you next time on 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. Thanks for listening.